Welcome, Dr. McGrath and Lisa Beland. It's a pleasure to have you here today in the training center to talk about our maternal and child health episode. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. It's a great opportunity. Thank you. So, Dr. McGrath, um, if I could just ask, what has your recent research been focused on surrounding maternal and child health, and what have you been working on lately at the college? So I've been doing research in Indonesia. Actually, I set out to do research on decentralization policies. So I was doing research at one district in Indonesia, and I was sort of compelled to look into the maternal health situation because that seemed to be the highest priority um, for the district that where I was working. And so I became very interested in doing research with local midwives in Indonesia. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, I just want a disclaimer for the episode that maternal and child health is not my area of study, so I'm going to be asking a lot of questions today um, about that topic. I know, Lisa, you've had a little bit more experience um, with maternal and child health since that's what you've been studying. So my first question would be, you talked about um, working with midwives. Can you go into the difference between skilled birthing attendants and traditional birthing attendants and how that's related to midwifery at all? Yes, so this distinction between skilled birth attendants and traditional birth attendants emerges in the literature. And these two categories of each of them is a very broad category, and they were developed for to clarify policy uh, in the World Health Organization. And it was really based on a recognition, uh, looking at the evidence uh, based on statistics, that where a skilled birth attendant is available, the birth outcomes improve. So the definition of a skilled birth attendant is an accredited health worker it could be a nurse, doctor, or midwife who has been trained, formally trained, in the skills necessary for a normal or uncomplicated delivery and to detect signs that would require a referral. So that is a, a, a definition that has come out of a medical perspective on birth. <clears throat> and we can say that the traditional birth attendant is sort of a catch-all phrase for everybody else. And I think um, anthropologists have found that the traditional birth, the so-called traditional birth attendant actually varies enormously from country to country and within countries. But typically, they would be trained through experience, through apprenticeship, and um, they would be somebody within the community who would assist at births. So those would be the people before Western medicine came to a country like Indonesia with the Dutch colonial uh, Mm -hmm. power, then it would have been just the traditional birth attendant. So now you have these two categories. You have the trained birth attendant. In Indonesia, they're called bidan. And then you have the traditional birth attendant who are called uh, dukunbai. And uh, so a lot of my work has been around the policies relating to these two type of midwives. Yeah, that's fascinating. I know we're going to talk more about the article that you wrote Mm -hmm. and that Sana and I both read. And I think like being in maternal and child health or working in it as I have, it's always interesting to hear just the language about birth attendants, like skilled birth attendants versus traditional, as if traditional birth attendants aren't skilled, right? And I think your article is really touching on the skills that traditional birth attendants have 
that are not being paid attention to, that are not being empowered. Um, and so I'm wondering how, like when we're looking at some of these questions that we have, how these policies have translated into like the human rights issues mm -hmm. for these traditional birth attendants or the women that they work with, when that skill is kind of taken out of the focus, I suppose. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. Yes. So I think the, the term skilled birth attendant does, as you suggest, Lisa, it implies that the traditional birth attendant doesn't have any skills. So there we have to question uh, what, what do we mean by a skill? And it seems that it's been defined medically in terms, purely in terms of technical skills. Now, the traditional birth attendant has been regarded by both colonial powers and the medical profession as potentially dangerous or harmful because they are seen as not having adequate technical skills in hygiene, in detecting danger signs, and so on. And so, the what the, so that they've been defined negatively, and mm -hmm. and 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 what they are actually offering has been kind of eclipsed. Then the fact that mothers and families continue to choose traditional birth attendants. In some cases, such as Indonesia, even when skilled birth attendants are available, they're still choosing the mothers. So that is interpreted often through the medical lens as related to ignorance or uh, the mothers not being able to assess risk. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I would advocate taking the mother's perspective and the traditional birth attendant's perspective more seriously, especially in a context where there's increasing evidence of disrespectful care yes. in the clinic. So why do mothers choose a tradition? Why would they choose a traditional birth attendant when a skilled birth attendant is available? Uh, and this is there is some research on this and there and my own research confirms this, that there are multiple factors, but the traditional birth attendant provide a continuous service, a respectful service. Mm -hmm. They provide care that is very much valued in addition to performing religious and cultural uh, yes. pro, uh, uh, rituals that are also highly valued. So uh, in my article, I use this term, a proper birth. What, what constitutes a proper birth? One version would be a hospital birth, uh, where you're rigged up to machines and everything. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the local context, a proper birth means that you're accompanied by the traditional birth attendant and she knows what, what is required in, from the religious and cultural aspect as well. Apart from that, there are many practical reasons. She's just probably local in the community. Yes. You know she's there. And uh, <clears throat> in terms of social status... Although the traditional birth attendant is highly respected in the community, even though she's often derided by the medical community, um, it, it's much easier from a social point of view to just call the traditional birth attendant. Now, the, I think, again, there's a lot of research on sort of hierarchical relationships within the medical profession and between medical providers and uh, ordinary people, but for a mother to call a medical provider is difficult. They feel intimidated. They feel shy. Why should I bother her? She's busy. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and how can I repay her for for that service that she's done? Whereas with a traditional birth attendant, there are um, um, established ways that you can pay back, whether it's in kind or whether it's in cash. Yes. So uh, the whole thing is is much more complicated, and I think it's very easy in uh, the World Health Organization or even in national capitals or even in health centers to uh, 
think up policies and try to pursue policies, but uh, without understanding the context in which the decisions are made. So uh, there have been some ethnographies uh, in Indonesia and elsewhere that focus more on how these decisions are made and the factors that go into it and the reason why the traditional birth attendant is valued. And that suggests that the skilled birth attendant could actually learn a lot from the traditional birth attendant in terms of how to communicate with patients. And we're always talking about patient-centered care. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we're kind of trying to eliminate the person who really knows about patient-centered care. Yeah, so. that was a that was a great explanation. And I think one of the things that we struggle with in the West definitely is thinking about childbirth as purely a medical um, event happening, where for the woman and for the family, it's so much more mm-hmm. than just a medical procedure that's going mm-hmm. on. So you do need to have people involved that have that cultural um, understanding of what you're going through and somebody that you can feel comfortable with, not intimidated by um, exactly how you've mentioned. So when we were discussing this earlier, you mentioned that we have these policies in place. So the, the reason this divide between the traditional um, birthing attendants and skilled birthing attendants have, has happened is because of World Health Organization policies. How have these policies actually been implemented and have they been implemented perfectly? Mm. Are there any roadblocks in the way? Um, We all know that it's not as simple as having, making a policy and then having it be perfectly implemented the next day. Right. So one of the fascinating things about the World Health Organization policy towards traditional birth attendance particularly is that it has evolved over time. And the, the midwives that I work with in Indonesia had experienced that transition. And so I think that, and it's very understandable why it has evolved, because in the 60s and 70s, basically there weren't any skilled birth attendants. And so the policy was to train the traditional birth attendant. So then, you know, the traditional birth attendant is already there. Why not train them in hygienic practices and detecting the signs? So there were training programs all over the world for many years. Uh, But then around, in Indonesia, I would say around 2000, Uh, following a massive village midwife program of uh, sending these uh, skilled birth attendants to the villages. So um, there were were many uh, skilled birth attendants. Most villages had a skilled birth attendant by around 2000. And so that was the time when the World Health Organization policy shifted. And this was based on quite a lot of evidence or studies coming in saying that the training of the traditional birth attendants did not result in improved birth outcomes. It had been disappointing, it wasn't working, and there are various explanations uh, for that. Now, I wanted to point out that there are still ongoing studies and some of them point out that it, you know, depending on the who the traditional birth attendants are, what kind of training, training can be effective and still makes a lot of sense in a context where there aren't enough skilled birth attendants. Um, but in uh, Indonesia, for example, where they, uh, as in many countries, they uh, pay a lot of attention to the World Health Organization policies. And so their policy shifted away from training the traditional birth attendants. Now, in during that time, the 90s, 2000, in many places, the, the effect of the World Health Organization shift was that traditional birth attendants were regulated or banned or criminalized. Um, one case would be India or Ghana, where they are basically not considered part of the health system. 
and they are um, not allowed to practice. Mm -hmm. So Indonesia adopted actually uh, quite an innovative program of partnership between the two types of midwives. Oh, and that would seem to be a very nice compromise where you're trying to incorporate the traditional birth attendant within the health system, but they're working in partnership with the skilled birth attendant. So in, in Indonesia, the this policy was formalized in 2007 as a national policy, uh, not legally enforceable, but this is the national policy that a traditional birth attendant is not allowed to attend a birth on her own. She must work together with the skilled birth attendant as her assistant. So inform the skilled birth attendant um, when the mother is pregnant and when the birth is about to take place. And so that that was the policy in Indonesia. And I became very interested in that because it is rather unique yes. uh, uh, to make this effort. And I think it's related to Indonesian culture and uh, the, the avoidance of particularly Javanese culture where you try to avoid conflict. Mm -hmm. And so rather than having these two in competition with each other, why not create a situation where they can work together? Now, when I looked into the details of the partnership, um, it is an, an unequal partnership. And one of the things that I would want to advocate would be, again, a more equal partnership where it's not just the traditional birth attendant has to learn from the skilled birth attendant, but it should be reciprocal so that the skilled birth attendant can also respect and learn from the traditional birth attendant. And what drew my attention to that was that when I spoke to some of the traditional birth attendants, they said, well, you know, we, we have to work in partnership, but it's humiliating and we get scolded and, you know, we and sometimes the birth comes too quickly and then we take uh, the baby to the health center and we're, we're scolded mm -hmm. and we find that humiliating. Oh, yeah, that would be. <laughs> so yeah. um, especially when they've been doing it for for many, many right. years and it was their domain. Yeah, right. There are so many, and I would like in your article, the, what was it, the buzzword of right to health. Yes. Um, it's just like there's so many power and control dynamics that play out within the biomedical field, um, whether it's here or in other countries. And it's like once we figure out one thing to do to get people to you know, access healthcare services, we realize we put up another barrier. And one of these is not having patient-centered care, right? Even here in the States, and we're trying to get back mm -hmm. there. Um, and you talked about in your article about the deference that like community members were kind of showing the skilled birth attendant in a like a community clinic setting, but how separated that attendant was from the community itself, like even physically in the space sitting away from them and not mm -hmm. connecting with them. Mm -hmm. um, and like what kind of reverence, I suppose, is imposed on biomedicine yes. and how that can be dangerous at times um, when you don't have a provider that is really caring for all of you. But it's just like, I think that reverence that comes with biomedicine, and it's not, biomedicine's amazing, but mm -hmm. it's like you lose that connection and you lose, you can lose that trust in a provider when you hear stories like that, mm -hmm. right? Or you see what this um, traditional birth attendant, or sorry, the skilled birth attendant, just being in this space and not really being able to meet all the needs of the clients, right? Uh, what that, 
how do I want to say it? It's just doing such a disservice, I suppose, to health mm-hmm. in general. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, in response to that, I would say that many of the skilled birth attendants who I uh, work with, they were trying, you know, they were really yeah. trying to meet the needs. And when I was doing my research, I remember one of the um, midwives sort of was really interested in what the mother said to me mm-hmm. because she said, I, I need to improve my service, so I need to understand the mother's perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> there's a very wide variation. But I think this raises the question of, you know, why, what is the role of medicine? Because as I am somebody who looks at policy, um, and I think in Indonesia particularly, the there is, as I said, medicine was brought in by the by the colonial power, and then after independence in 1945, Indonesia wanted to chart out its own path towards mm-hmm. modernity, and medicine is part of that. And so the uh, the bidan, the skilled uh, birth attendants, sometimes explicitly and sometimes implicitly regard themselves as role models of modernity mm-hmm. and progress and development. And so this may explain why they tend to set themselves apart a little bit and they want the mothers and the health volunteers and everybody to follow the role model that they're presenting. And if mothers don't do that because they choose the traditional birth attendant, they're kind of holding the nation back. So mm-hmm. it's much broader than you know just childbirth or just mm-hmm. medicine. Yeah, it's sort of the whole, mm-hmm. we're moving towards the future and these mothers are holding us back mm-hmm. um, because the traditional birth attendant, whatever she offers is associated with the past and not with the future. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that is made very explicit that even though Indonesia has this partnership policy, the hope is that it's just a transitional thing mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. traditional birth attendants will will be phased out and we won't have to worry about them anymore because they're kind of a headache for the yeah. medical profession because we don't know what they're doing and mm-hmm. they but this is where medicine and government kind of interact yeah. mm-hmm. overlap you know they're beyond control of the government we don't know what they're doing even when we offer trainings sometimes they don't come so um so I think that's the sort of broader mm-hmm. context yeah. for understanding that. And it, it can be hard um, if you're a woman in one of these more remote places to even, mm-hmm. in the first place, get access to um, a skilled birthing attendant. I know, I'm not sure how it is in Indonesia, but the papers that I was reading, I think it was in, in Ghana. Yes. yes, it was in Ghana. And they were talking about how the policy was in place, but even though the policy was in place, there was still that um, physical barrier of being too, you know, rem- remote village um, or a remote area, and they wouldn't even have that mm-hmm. access in the first place. Um, but going back to what you were talking about and what you were talking about, Lisa, um, talking about what role the actual woman has, um, and when we make policies like that, at times it can feel like we're taking that decision away from the mother herself. So mm-hmm. why, this is kind of a huge question that we grapple with, both here in the U.S. and in other countries, but why don't we trust women to make decisions about their own health? And why do we have these policies in place? Yes, I think that's a, fun, that's a great question, and there are many directions that it could go, but I want to take it in one direction, which is that um, we don't... I think trust is a really important word. Uh, we don't trust the woman to make uh, the, the best decision, but we do trust the numbers. We trust the evidence. We trust the statistics. And uh, the statistics are telling us that initially uh, that maternal mortality ratios are unacceptably high. 
Um, so I'm very interested in the power of that statistic of the maternal mortality ratio and also infant mortality ratio. That um, This really came to light in 1987 when there was a global conference in Kenya that launched the safe motherhood. And that was the first time that people really realized, my goodness, so many mothers are dying in these places around the world and we have to do something about it. And so the statistic of the maternal mortality ratio, it purports to present factual information. You know, this is the in Indonesia, for example, in 1990, uh, maternal mortality ratio about 446 per 100,000 life births. That's considered unacceptably high. In the US, it's around 30, I think. And the US is high for a wealthy, industrialized country. But you've got these huge inequalities. And so the statistic of the maternal mortality ratio are very, they elicit an emotional response that we must do something about it. And uh, it's a kind of imperative to act on it. And they also acquire a political power because no country wants to be labeled as having a very high maternal mortality rate. Mm -hmm. So all these things combine, um, and the, there's been a lot of uh, literature as well about the rise of evidence-based medicine and how the way we frame health problems and solutions, the way we allocate funds, increasingly is based on numbers. This has been called governing by numbers or playing the numbers game. And in many low and income uh, countries, they get, a, they get aid that is entirely dependent on what numbers they can yes. produce now. Um, so that involves a narrowing of objectives and a narrowing of the way that maternal health is conceived, that the focus is very much on the statistics and on the death. So if the imperative is to reduce the death statistics, then the logical conclusion is we have to get the mother into the hospital, mm -hmm. forgetting that from the experience of the mother, there's the psychosocial aspects of birth are also important and she may get disrespectful care in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So I see it as sort of embedded in this much wider system where we of governing by numbers where the focus is on improving the statistics. And I think that um, has a domino effect. The Millennium Development Goals included the percent of births attended by a skilled birthing attendant as one of two indicators uh, related to Millennium Development Goal 5 to reduce maternal mortality. So it means that everybody in the health system down to the village midwife uh, is under pressure to increase that percentage yeah. mm -hmm. and improve the statistics. And so that's their focus and to the exclusion of everything else. So it, that is a long answer to no, why, was, why we don't yeah. trust the mother, yeah. because we're trusting the, 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 the statistics instead. Yeah. Yes. And I have to, I agree with mm -hmm. everything that that goes into, especially being a student in maternal and child health but also how easy we flow between the language of the health of a woman and the health of a mother and centering women's health around maternity, around maternal, around giving birth or being a mom, rather than being a multifaceted being that has a lot of other identities. And that is tied so closely to how we are getting our statistics, how people, how countries are getting their funding, how they're viewed by the rest of the world is centering women around this idea of giving birth rather than centering them around the identity 
all their different identities, of right? Of being a person. <laughs> of being a person with very specific health needs outside of just giving birth. And I wonder, and it's not to say that the maternal mortality ratio is the wrong ratio. It's a fascinating ratio. It was fascinating to learn in all my classes that it is such a good, I don't want to say good indicator, but such a strong indicator of a country's health because I have to think about the way that we are presenting data to the world and how the world is evolving and changing and that our data and the way that we we define it needs to change with it. And when we're giving messages about women and maternity, to me, this goes back to this very question of why don't we trust women to make decisions? It is a power and control dynamic of what it is to bring life into the world, right? Instead of looking at a woman outside of just being a mom. Um, yeah, so I just, I, I, and I wonder if we could focus mm-hmm. in time on all types of people who identify as women, whether they're born biologically female or not, to get female-oriented healthcare services, how that could also play into lowering maternal mortality rates, right? Instead of just finding them at this point, you know, of care when they're pregnant or they're giving birth or they just gave birth, but finding them before that happens, way after that happens, and encouraging the healthcare system to meet them at all those needs, how that could potentially affect our data, you know? Mm-hmm. I was going to ask what you hope to see how oh, yeah. maternal and child health and women's health change in the next decade. You answered that very perfectly. Um, but switching gears a little bit, I know earlier. Um, we were alluding to an article that you wrote that was published in the journal um, Medical Anthropology. And the title of that article, which I will provide a link to in the description of this episode, is called Right to Health, a Buzzword in Health Policy in Indonesia. Um, Can you discuss um, what the right to health buzzword is and what inspired you to write the article and even pursue that line of work? Right, sure. Yes. So, as a medical anthropologist, my goal was to capture the perspective of people positioned differently within the health service. So, the district level, uh, the the program managers at the at the district office, and then at the sub district health center, the providers, and then in the village, the traditional birth attendant, skilled birth attendant, the mothers, the parents uh, and the health volunteers. So why would you be interested in capturing all those perspectives? Well, the uh, rationale within medical anthropology is that you, if, you, if you're going to solve a problem, you need to understand all those perspectives in order to uh, solve it adequately. Because if you, include, if you exclude some of those stakeholders, then your solution is probably not going to be um, very effective. So I was just uh, struck by a, a difference in perspective that I detected in relation to the policy on partnership that I was uh, describing earlier. So the policy on partnership, <clears throat> to reiterate, states that a traditional birth attendant may not attend a birth alone, but they they should attend the birth with the skilled birth attendant. And so the two types of midwives are encouraged to work together. So I was doing a focus group discussion with health volunteers and I and I was interested in the kind of dilemmas that they face in their work because they uh, in other words thinking about the implementation of policy uh, what sort of dilemmas arise when you actually try to implement a policy and this health volunteer young uh, woman and she said well she was at the home of a mother and the mother was about to give birth and the traditional birth attendant said okay now we should call the skilled birth attendant 
And it was the mother who said, no, no, I, I, I don't want to call the skilled birth attendant. Uh, I, I, I feel shy and I, and I don't want to bother her and I just want to give birth at home. So um, a lot could be read into, you know, why the mother had that perspective. Um, but some of the midwives who I spoke to talked of mothers actually becoming, they were afraid mothers would become hysterical or something like that. Um, we also have to remember that the, um, the health volunteer is embedded in the community herself. So she has to think about long-term relationships with these people. So uh, she sort of talked to the traditional birth attendant and they agreed that uh, the, the, the birth didn't seem to be risky, there were no danger signs. And so they made the judgment, knowing the policy, they still made the judgment, oh, we'll just let the mother give birth at home. So the mother gave birth at home, there were no problems and they took the baby to the health center and uh, everyone lived happily ever after. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I then um, took this same case study to the district office with the program managers and the policymakers, and I presented it in another focus group there. And they were adamant that the health volunteer had made the wrong decision, the policy should always be implemented. Mm -hmm. um, because you never know when uh, something's going to happen uh, and uh, any birth is potentially risky. Now, again, as an anthropologist, I, I don't want to pass judgment. I, I take both of those viewpoints as valid. But what really fascinated me was, without me saying anything, they, the district office people described this in terms of the right to health. They said, you see, if the mother comes to the clinic for, for her birth, then we, the government, have fulfilled the mother's right to health because her right to health means access to the best possible mm -hmm. care. And so we had this very interesting discussion where I would sort of say, well, you know, what about the traditional birth attendant? And they would say, and it isn't, isn't the traditional birth attendant providing a health service? And they actually laughed and said, no, the traditional birth attendant is not a health service. Um, you know, that's tradition and the mother would go there, you know, just following tradition not understanding and then well what about the mother doesn't she have a choice I would you know say because in my culture that's very important and they would say yes but as the government it's our duty to ensure that they have adequate care mm -hmm. so then look, investigating the right to health and definitions of the right to health and as I said in Indonesia there's a lot of respect for the United Nations the World Health Organization and actually if you examine it um, within the right to health as defined by the United Nations there are three aspects there's the right to access health services and the United Nations allocates responsibility to governments for ensuring that citizens have that access. So they, you could argue that district of officials were um, correct in that interpretation. There's also the right to protection from harmful practices. Uh, that opens a can of worms yeah. as to what is defined as a harmful practice because one could say that a C-section that's mm -hmm. not necessary is a harmful practice. Mm -hmm. But often it's interpreted as the traditional birth attendant, again, blamed. Yes. You know, she does the harmful practices. So, and the third aspect of the right to health is the right to choose, the right of the patient, the mother, whatever, to choose and to reject uh, a health service if, if it is offered. So my interpretation was that... Um, First of all, this is very complicated and you may often have situations where these different elements of the right to health would be in conflict. And so uh, uh, implicitly a kind of hierarchy emerges where the district officials in Indonesia were prioritizing access to, to the best medical care. And so the choice was um, 
considered sec secondary or tertiary to that. Um, so I think their, to, to present their perspective fairly, they would want to give uh, people the right to choose, but they feel their responsibility to protect the mother and provide the best access would override that in uh, most situations. So yeah. I find it so interesting too that they're like this country is so not our country Indonesia there's there's a country example that is so adamant to provide access yes. to quality healthcare services and whether you know how that works out and there's issues and barriers versus our country which is like yeah you got a right to health but can you get to it yeah. <laughs> can you pay for it yeah. like i don't know good luck there and they're you know actually actively working to try and bridge that gap and yeah it's just interesting to see how it works out. <laughs> yes. Well, so the broader issue there is that there, there's a very strong commitment to provide access to, to health services, and mm -hmm. that is highly commendable. Yes, it, it is. is. It is taking place in the context of a pluralistic mm -hmm. medical environment mm -hmm. where uh, people, even beyond uh, maternal health, people have a lot of choice. Mm -hmm. There are Islamic health services, there's mm -hmm. traditional, mm -hmm. which is also the case in the US. Mm -hmm. We have our complementary mm -hmm. and alternative medicine. Mm -hmm. But that presents challenges in policy and how do you, how does the policy deal with these uh, alternatives mm -hmm. that yeah. are maybe sort of seen as competing with the medical? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'm glad you uh, both brought up the US because I will get in trouble if we don't tie it back to the US <laughs> since this is a Western region oh, public right. health training center right. podcast. Um, <laughs> but just to kind of close out the episode, just a couple of more um, questions I want to hear your thoughts on both of you is um, how do you hope the field of maternal and child health and medicine can improve in the next decade? What do you hope to see both in the US and in other countries? Um, and how do we go about, this is a very broad question, but how do we go about promoting women's health and maternal and child health in our day-to-day -day jobs? So the audience for this podcast is the public health workforce. Mm. So how do we kind of integrate that into our into our day-to-day -day lives? I, I'm, I still have to go back to what I had mentioned previously yeah. of just That's viewing women as like a multifaceted being that has a lot of, they have a lot of aspects to themselves, but also acknowledging the changing landscape of gender, gender and power dynamics and how that needs to be brought into our healthcare services. Um, like right now where I'm working with El Rio, we've got the Reproductive Health Access Project, which is a teen-led sexual health project. And it's all about access, but it's also about working hand-in-hand -hand with providers, putting part providers and youth together to be partners. So partnering um, medical professionals, providers with their clients, with their communities in a way to meet their needs specifically. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they want not just for adults to be mentors to the youth, but the youth to be mentors to the adults to try and make this, you know, all of their services that they're providing as um, functional for the changing youth landscape in Tucson, especially the reproductive and sexual health landscape. So that's something that I'm really excited and interested to see how that mm -hmm. takes wings in the next decade beyond just youth and provider partnerships, but people of all you know mm -hmm. representations being able to partner with their providers yeah. in that way. And same question to you, Dr. McGrath. <laughs> well, I, I think you kind of presented two questions yes. and, and yeah. Lisa's addressed the first <laughs> yes. one, which is how do we see maternal health moving forward yes. as, you know, uh, maybe broader beyond maternal mm -hmm. health. So um, my advice to, pe to public health students is I know in public health, 
Uh, epidemiology is central, statistics are central, it's extremely important. But uh, I would advocate for going, looking at the stories behind the statistics, going beyond the statistics, qualitative studies, ethnographic studies, capture the perspective of the different people involved. We know that many of these statistics, such as the maternal mortality ratio, there are a lot of problems in the quality of the data and uh, uh, deaths being missed or uh, many reasons why uh, the data are, are kind of guesstimates. Not to say that we shouldn't use them, it's the best that we have and they're extremely useful, but just to have that balance and, and there's a tendency for qualitative studies to be downgraded uh, and even more difficult to get into medical journals. Um, we need to value those studies, they are complementary and we, we need more than just the, the numbers. We need to move away from playing the numbers game and, and uh, get back to understanding human beings yes. and how they make decisions. Which is why I'm so excited that you're in the College of Public Health mm -hmm. with your background in medical anthropology. It's really refreshing mm -hmm. to hear your perspectives on all different issues that we talk about in the college. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Of course. Thank you so much both for being here. Um, I really respect the work that both of you do. It's really important and necessary work. And I look forward to seeing what else comes in the future in this field. So thank you so much for educating me personally on a lot about maternal and child health today. So thank you so much. If you are looking to obtain continuing education credits for listening to this podcast, please head to moodle.publichealth.arizona.edu and click on the Keeping Up with Public Health tab in the WRPHTC section and take the post-evaluation survey for this episode. This podcast is supported by the Western Region Public Health Training Center. You can find more of our work at www.wrphtc.arizona.edu. You can also find us on Twitter at WRPHTC. A special thank you to Eric Healy for editing and producing the show in addition to creating the music for each episode.